0: You're listening to a Hindustan Times podcast, brought to you by HD Smartcast.
1: Hi, this is Manjula Narayan, National Books Editor, Hindustan Times, and this is the Books and Authors podcast. It's a weekly podcast where I speak to authors who've got a new book out. (music) Hi, so today we have with us Radhika Iyengar, who's written Fire on the Ganges, Life Among the Dead in Banaras. Hi, Radhika. Hi, lovely to connect with you and speak to you. Yes, you know, Radhika, this is a a great book. I mean, you know, it's like, especially uh, because we don't even... Think about this. Actually, you know, you think about death rituals and stuff, but you don't, you know, even as a Hindu, I mean, one knows that these people are there working and all, but you know, what you've done is that you have, you've seen them, you know, and the rest of us tend to not see them. So I'm just wondering, you know, I'm just, you I know, you know, we know that there are people working there, you know, domes and all that. But, you know, unless until I saw, actually, I saw, I saw Masan, I didn't even think of them as, you know. And you, you, you've actually, I, I saw the acknowledgements, you've acknowledged Vicky Koshal right at the end. And that's when I thought, you know, oh. So, yeah, so tell me, how did you, unlike the rest of us, what made you focus on this community? I and mean, what made you see them, you know, really?
0: So, um, yeah, it's interesting because I was, uh, it happened quite serendipitously, I think. Uh, I was uh, pursuing my master's in journalism at Columbia University. And at that time, we were expected to uh, write a thesis. And uh, I was looking for a couple of uh, subjects. um, And uh, I came across this one particular article about the Dome community. And it instantly stirred a curiosity within me. And uh, I went back and uh, tried researching more about the community. And whatever I could find um, was, I would say, uh, insufficient back in the day. Um, And it wasn't, uh, you know, the literature was very, whatever little bit literature that was available about the community focused entirely on their work at the cremation ground. But I was interested in finding out more other narratives surrounding this community, you know how do what happens to the men who work at the ghats how does it affect them psychologically when they are constantly seeing um you know corpses coming in and they are supposed to cremate them all the time that's where their life is uh, is limited to you know they don't have alternative professions uh, to choose from And uh, so how does that affect them psychologically? How does that affect them physically? Because they're working in a very hostile environment. uh, Because they're working with fire and... There's a lot of smoke, uh, which sort of settles deep in your lungs, and there's of course dehydration, and then to cope with all their, um, uh, these really, uh, difficult circumstances, they, uh, take to you know consuming alcohol and, um, having uh, you know consuming drugs, uh, to cope with all of this. Um, so I was very, I was interested in, in knowing that, and at the same time I was. I also wanted to know what about the children, you know, because they, nobody wants to grow up to become a cop's burner. So, yeah. um, how do they get, access? do they have access to quality education? How is the internet shaping their minds or influencing them? Um, and, and what about the women in the sense, like, are are the women allowed to step out of their homes and work? Um, what are their dreams? What are their aspirations? Are they even allowed to think for themselves? Um, So all of those questions were sort of lingering in my mind. And uh, that's why I decided to look deeper into this, um, uh, you know, deeper into the community. And uh, that's that's how it all
1: began. Okay. So you you, I mean, I you know, when when I was reading it, I was thinking that perhaps, you know, these questions about the women uh, came later like after you interacted with them. But you already had it. I mean, it was already a point, was it? Because... uh...
0: Um, so when I was focusing on my thesis, I I was, uh, I wanted to look at education and, and children. That was uh, my focus, in one sense. And then when I went there, um, when I started interacting with the community members, and I spoke to the women, I realized that their stories are also equally important. And the thing is that, like I mentioned earlier, that whatever had been documented about the dome community was very limited to the cremation ground. So it only yes. focused on the men. The women, women were voiceless. Women were invisible completely in um you know in the news reports and uh whatever literature was available at that time. And uh, and when I spoke to the women, they uh they they would open up to me, and uh, and I felt like you Know their stories need to be compiled as
1: well and documented. You know, when you talk about opening up, how did you make the first, uh, uh, you know, the first uh, first connection with these people? Because I mean, we know that Indian society is like stratified, and that, you know, we aren't from that strata. I mean, let's be, uh, you know, it we know that we are like elite we are, you know, in in every way. So, how did you? How did you make friends with them? How did you make the, you know, how did you get them to trust you so that they would speak to you in the way that they have done, you know?
0: Mm. So for me, it was initially when I went to the cremation ground at Money Ghat, the men over there were the corpse burners. They were not so receptive to my presence. Um, a, because I was a stranger and, uh, they, they would be like who are you and why are you asking us questions uh and also because I was a woman and yes. they were not used to a woman approaching them and talking to them because it's again a very patriarchal very conservative community so um so I had to really you know pull back in one sense and uh and I would stand at a distance and just observe the men working, how they were interacting with each other, how uh, they were setting up pyres. So that really enriched my ethnography process. And uh, and uh, when it came to the women, I I think it was relatively easy. I wouldn't say it was c- completely easy, but it was relatively easier because, um you know, as a woman journalist, I was able to sit down with them. And over a period of time, in the privacy of their homes, where initially of course the husband would always be there in our uh, initial conversations but once the you know once the husbands also knew knew me uh, they said okay you know we can let leave uh, her with with our wives and we can let her speak to them so there was some sort of comfort that had uh, developed over a period of time and uh, you know women uh, for for me they just i feel they just wanted to be heard so if there was someone who was sitting down with them and having conversations about their lives and willing to listen to them in um, with with attention with sympathy with uh, with with love then they would open up so um and initially you know like our uh, the beginning conversations when i started uh, going to chand ghat um, and ghat of course, I've changed the name of the neighborhood to protect the identity of the people and the neighborhood. Um, but that's the dome basti where everyone lives. Mm-hmm. And initially, when I went there, the conversations were very formal and very to the point. Um, but over a period of time, once I became a familiar presence, then they started opening up more, you know, um, and our conversations became more organic, more easygoing. And then, um, and during these very lengthy conversations was when, you know, I would gain some insight into into their personalities, you know, because over a period of time, you can sense the way somebody talks or their facial expressions or their gestures, all of that um, really gives you an insight into their personality. So that was my process.
1: Okay, okay. So, so you built relationships over a long period of time. So were you able to, like, and in between the, uh, uh, you know, there was a pandemic. So how did you keep up with them? You know, Mm. how did you maintain those relationships?
0: Well, thankfully, uh, because of technology, um, Mm. I was able to speak to them. And uh, they all had mobile phones by that time. Um, And there was video calling available they all had smartphones initially in 2015 everyone didn't have a phone yeah. but by this time uh during the lockdown everyone had the phone and i was i would be constantly in touch with them i would speak to them and they would tell me um what they have been experiencing while being in banaras while staying in that basti um you know because it was everyone was expected to remain indoors during quarantine and and these are you have to know that these are families which have 6 to 7 family members sometimes even more and they are living in these really small spaces yeah. so it becomes very oppressive if you're expected to stay indoors almost all the time and yeah. they could only step out for either emergency reasons or to buy groceries um and if they wanted to just step out for a stroll I remember one of the women telling me that, you know, there there was a uh, a cop over there with a baton who would be patrolling the neighborhood and he would just, uh, you know, run after them and ask them to go back into their homes. So for them, it was a very um, terrible period. It was very, um, it was very difficult for them to cope. It was very oppressive for them Mm -hmm. at that time.
1: You know, and there's that whole chapter where you talk about how, uh, you know, when the bodies piled up, they were like forced to work nonstop almost. Right. So talk about that, because yeah. that's kind of that's that's the really shocking bit. And, you know, I, I connected it to like re- later when Bola says that, uh, you know, he wants as a beginning, he wants them to be recognized as workers with fixed hours. And, you know, and that's something like why aren't they you know, it's because they are in such a cocoon of I don't know, some sort of you know, ancient practice when actually it's like a labor intensive job, right? Mm-hmm. Which isn't it isn't mm-hmm. being recognized as that. So so talk about that and how during the pandemic those things, you know, were so uh, uh I mean that was what was exacerbated, right, for them having to work yes. for the men especially. So
0: uh Mohan, who is one of the cops burners. He told me that during the pandemic, initially there was this fear, right? There was a, this wave of fear that had um, that has shrouded uh, the entire country. We were all very worried about what's happening and there was a lot of panic and chaos. And um, during the pandemic, in the initial phase, nobody wanted to work. None of the cops burners wanted to work because everyone, of course, was scared for their lives. Mm -hmm. And Mohan told me that there were the managers. So managers also belong to the dome community, but they are the ones who um, sort of oversee the proper functionings of the cremation ground. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the managers would go door to door and pull the corpse burners out of their homes and would, you know, would force them to work at the cremation ground because there were so many bodies that were coming nonstop. And it was just very chaotic very catastrophic and um and he then eventually over a period of time he told me they got used to it there were a handful of cops burners burning bodies at that time and and there what happened was that there were so many people there grief-stricken uh Family members who were just handing off two thousand rupees, three thousand rupees, five thousand rupees to um to the corpse burners, begging them to have their loved ones cremated at the cremation ground because there was so much uh, panic and um and it, under normal circumstances, a corpse burner earns somewhere around two hundred to two fifty rupees for each body he cremates, mm-hmm. and at the during the pandemic, the the cost of it obviously escalated right there was everything the cost of everything was escalating there was um, you know there were there was a depletion of pyre wood so therefore whatever pyre wood was available that became expensive uh, the samagri became expensive crematory yes. services became expensive and um so uh, someone like mohan uh, began earning marginally uh, marginally like he did read uh, have some financial gains like he went and um you know bought a refrigerator he bought a television set he bought saris and jewelry for his wife um but at what cost you know because he was literally risking his life uh when yes. he was working at uh, yes. Manikarnika ghat and um but thankfully Touchwood, nothing happened to him and um because of this he also became slightly I would say cocky or arrogant because uh in the book I've I've described a scene where he um you know he's walking without a mask um uh on the on the streets and um you know the cops suddenly stop him and they start manhandling him and they tell him that you know why aren't you wearing a mask and uh and then he says that Main abhi murda jala ke you know I've, I've, I've I'm coming back from burning the bodies so and then suddenly they take a step back they're they are horrified. And then he asked them that, can I move ahead now? So then they let him go. And um, and so he he told me that, you know, nothing happened to me and nothing happened to the other cops burners because we are, um, you know, we are So we are the children of Shivji in one sense and nothing is going to happen to us. So there was that belief also. And then there were other rumors such as like alcohol keeps, um, you know, COVID away. So, they had those beliefs as well. Um, so, it was it was a very strange period um, for, of course, the entire community, uh, for, uh, for, for the entire for country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, for the world. And um,
1: and this is how they were coping with it. How the domes were coping with it. Hmm. And, you know, I found it quite fascinating that they should, um, um, this thing about, you know, because we are Shivji's people. And this sort of uh, 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 idea that they were protected because they were the cops burners. And, you know, all that whole uh, thing about their belief in their exceptionalism in a certain way, which, you know, um, I mean, I've, while I was reading it, I was thinking that perhaps, you know, the caste system continues to exist because people believe in things like this. You know, they believe in, even though, even, even when they're like, Like he, at some point he says, we are not sweepers, you know. And he says, I think it's Mohan who says it. You know, he says they... Another dome says it, that we're not sweepers. We don't belong to the sweeper caste. Yes. So then that that sets them apart from other, uh, uh, you know, oppressed castes. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? So uh, in a sense, so perhaps everybody has those sort of ideas and which is what keeps unity away you know these are the sort of ideas that came to me while I was reading your book because it gives such an insight into um, so you know tell me about uh, maybe other insights that you got into you know their ways of thinking that could perhaps so
0: I mean that's very interesting because the domes uh, believe that they are the chosen ones by Shivji because they have uh, you know they they feel that they have they are the only ones who can provide moksh, which yeah. is salvation right they feel and this is a hindu belief um um that they that the domes are the owners of the sacred fire and only if a hindu is cremated by the sacred fire can uh they receive moksha Mm. and um so they so the domes really take pride in that there's immense Mm. pride in the work they do Mm. in that sense because this there's this over um there's this uh, belief that has been continuing for generations right and and so like one of the domes who told me he said which is whether you're a prince or a pauper at the end of the day you're going to fall at the chaudhary's feet and the domes yeah. are the chaudhary in, in this uh context and but i feel like somewhere they try to they try to they take they take pride in the their ability to give moksh, but it's also a way of validating their place in society or justifying their place in society. In in a society that otherwise shuns them, humiliates them, um treats them as untouchables. Uh, through this uh, belief uh that they provide moksh, they feel they have some sort of religious capital in society and uh, but at the same time you know i feel that they that they are unwittingly circulating this narrative of oppression because at mm-hmm. the end of the day they, there's no privileged caste person who would want to do this job yes, yes. so unfortunately they that, that's why the domes are continuing to do this job and that's why they're not able to break away from this caste barrier um
1: so that is that is uh, that's what i feel Hmm. hmm so let's talk about bola who i found like really impressive character you know i mean he's such an impressive person to do to persist with uh, uh with his studies and you know despite all the difficulties i mean it's a superhuman achievement really to you yeah. know join i mean the hordes of others who've been so much more privileged and not not stand out you know and not even like To appear like everybody else when clearly his origins are, you know, very different. And he's experienced so much more and been, you know, put through so much more. So talk about him. Let me, you know, I want to know about him.
0: So Bola is a very inspiring individual. Uh, Personally for me also, even now when I speak to him, he inspires me almost every time when I speak to him uh he is this really intelligent man a uh, young man and he's highly ambitious so um he's the only one in his basti who has been able to leave chand ghat leave banaras and pursue higher education uh in another city in ludhiana mm-hmm. and uh, but even in ludhiana when he's studying in college that's when we meet him in the book mm-hmm. he hides his caste he hides his background not because he's ashamed of who he is, but because he knows that anyone who learns his truth, um, you know, they start distancing themselves from him. Or they'll try to ridicule him or humiliate him or um, or feel that he's there because of reservations. You know, they'll, they won't take, they will not acknowledge that he is someone worthy of being where he is but he's come he's managed to study in in that particular college because of his hard work so and the uh, so but bhola at the same time because of this because he hides his caste he um he tries to fit into this um this middle class universe in one sense so he will um you know he make sure his hair is um combed a certain way uh, his shirt is always ironed his uh shoes are always polished and he uh he tries to learn english to the best of his abilities and uh you know in he he told me once and this is in the book where he said that every time like he speaks english and if sometimes he mispronounces a word and his uh, classmates make fun of him and uh, but he doesn't let that deter him in any way he'll just tell them okay tell me how to pronounce it correctly And then they, of course, tell him and then he'll keep repeating it over and over again until he perfects it. So the point I'm trying to make through this example is that he doesn't let anything stop him. He will Mm -hmm. not let anything, um, you know, any kind of ridicule, any kind of mockery um, stop him from achieving his goal. He's that kind of a person. And even when he was in Chand Ghat, when he was growing up, um, when he was very young, he knew education was his only ticket out of um, where he was. And he would tell his, uh, you know, uncles and neighbors, and they would just laugh it off. And they would say, you know, um, you're the son of a corpse burner. And the son of a corpse burner can grow up to be nothing more than a cremator. And so somewhere he feels that, you know what, I'm going to prove you guys wrong. I'm going to change this narrative. I'm going to get out of here. And so the book really tracks his trajectory. To see whether he's able to achieve what he sets out to achieve.
1: And, you know, I was quite shocked that uh, these people kept telling their young, uh, you know, the the younger generation this. I mean, so for, for, for centuries, they've been saying this and people have been, I guess, adhering to it or running away and passing for something else, perhaps, you know. I mean, I'm sure earlier also there were people who wanted to escape this because this can't be... You know, how, however yes. much you think that it's a privileged position within Hindu society. I mean, if you're like clear sighted, you know that you're trapped in it. Right. So I was yes. just thinking of, of course, those are unrecorded. One doesn't know. Mm-hmm. You, know you know, bola story because you've recorded it. You know. Yes. But, yes. Uh, uh, so I was also thinking this is a lot like, uh, uh, you know, narratives of passing for somebody, for some other uh, uh, caste or other race, you know, it, it, there's also a sense of that in Bola's story, right? So, yeah,
0: I, yeah, absolutely. I, I feel that again, like I mentioned, he, he does this not because he is ashamed of his roots, he's very proud of who he is, but he feels this is the only way he can get ahead in life. Because in the past, um, you know, and in the book, I also have mentioned this when he was in school, uh, he Shared the fact that he is a dome and the son of a corpse burner to one of his very close friends who happened to be a dominant caste person, mm-hmm. and immediately, um, you know, and Bolat shared this in confidence. Like he confided in in his friend, but his friend went and told the entire class in the school, and after that, mm-hmm. everyone started treating him differently. They started looking at him differently. I think he he also says that someone told him that hutre to dome hai, hum tere saath nii So. Um, and these are his experiences. He's, he's really, I mean, if you're constantly, when you're growing up, Manjula, when you're growing up, if you're constantly belittled and you're told that you're a corpse burner and you're an untouchable, somewhere in your head, you start feeling like you are of no value, yeah. right? Yeah. Um. Especially as children, if, if, if you're constantly told that this is where your life is going to be, you're going to be burning bodies, you're going to be earning close to nothing. um. This is this is your environment, and this is where you're born, and this is where you're going to die. How how would that affect you to see so many corpses coming in and 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 seeing them uh, being cremated in front of you? First of all, it's a grotesque sight. So for mm-hmm. children growing up in that environment, they have nightmares. And um, but the point that I'm trying to make is that if you if you're told that constantly that you are you know you're worth nothing if that's what society tells you but if you are able to still fight that you know it's it's a it's a huge deal and bola is able to fight it he's not let anything negative affect him mm. i'm sure it affected him but he's not let that stop him he's yeah. that kind of a person
1: yeah yeah and you know what struck me particularly is that you know unlike other uh, when you think of other dalit narratives and you know their um, experience of discrimination and everything there are points of similarity of course but there's also this idea of you know like like we spoke about it earlier this idea that they are special that the domes are special in a certain sense within the hindu uh, uh, thing so maybe that complicates things further for them right psychologically And practically Mm. as well, because on the one hand, you're uh, uh, an untouchable, but on the other hand, you're also, you know, somebody who's very, very necessary and very, very, you know, considered to be important for the death rights. Yeah, Yeah,
0: absolutely. That that dichotomy is, it's very, um, like when I first learned about it, I was so surprised. And this is when I just started working on my thesis to find out that, they are so crucial, they're playing such a crucial role in the last rites. Mm. And, and they are doing this without, you know, they don't have any protective gear. Um, Like I mentioned earlier, that they, uh, you know, often burn themselves, like hurt themselves, because they're stoking the pyres uh, with a bamboo stick. And sometimes, you know, they'll accidentally step on freshly spewed hot ash from the pyres. So, you know they're constantly injuring themselves, and they they're sort of stuck, right? Because um they have to keep going back to Manikarnika Ghat to work, even when they injure themselves sometimes. Um, because nito chula kaise jalega? So they have to keep going, and they they will sometimes just ignore the injuries because they have to keep going and earning. So if they decide, I mean, if they are if it's really bad and if they stay back at home, um, if they've injured themselves and they can't work and they stay back at home, then then the everything comes to a standstill at the house because the children can't be fed food. Or you, so it's it's a very and they don't have access to medical ed- attention because all of that costs money. So it's it's a very, very trying, very difficult um life that they lead. Um so and so that's what I'm trying to say that even though they work and their work is considered to be of great religious significance because they provide moksh, but at the same time when they are considered to be untouchables by a majority of dominant caste Hindus, then you know what kind of a society are we living in? I mean, they should be given that kind of respect and dignity, yeah. which they don't. And in fact, even um when I was working on this book i used you know people would ask me uh, what are you working on and i would tell them about the domes and the dome community and many of them did not even know who do- the domes were and that that lack of knowledge that there is this community that is performing this highly specialized work and it's a caste bound profession which is inherited from father to son and that this community lives in the mart you know lives at the margins of society and nobody knows about them. You know, why is that?
1: Hmm.
0: I mean, you would go to Manikarnika Ghat even, you would see men working and burning corpses but nobody would know that they. it's a community that does this work that they they don't have other alternative professional options.
1: Yes. Of course,
0: now many things are changing uh, like, for example, Bola has managed to leave but that's also, he's, he's a different person. A lot of people like Shortcut can't Get out of um, get out of that busty Get out of that work.
1: So is shortcut continuing to work there while he's doing his studies?
0: Um. So shortcut is now uh working. Uh, he's doing his studies and he's now working as a tour guide. Oh, yeah. And um, yeah. With Lakshay. Lakshay, 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 hasn't been able to get out uh, completely. He, of course, um, he he works he does two jobs now. He does, he works as a tour guide and he also uh, sells wood at Manika Ghat. So he's, uh, he's really hustling because, um, because of his family. So okay. he has
1: to work very hard. So all of Komal, them work What What is Komal doing though? What is Komal doing? Um, What is Komal doing uh, in the book or what is Komal doing in now? In general, because at the end of the book, I wanted to know more, you know, what are these people doing now? Are they, you know? So I'm asking. Um, <laughs> Well, I don't want to disclose
0: uh, too much, uh, but but she uh, she's teaching uh, young children okay. um, who are going to school. She gives uh, tuition services. There's also a very like a like a very happy news, but uh, but if I reveal that,
1: then I okay, I can guess what it is, but <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. let the people read and they'll they'll also yeah. understand. Yeah. Mm-hmm
1: so it's that's the you know that's a scary st- their love story is another thing mm. that was like you know i was look, reading it and thinking my god how much how did how are these people these young people so strong you know because it's so difficult like when you have uh, uh when you're faced with so much negativity you know from the community from the from the neighborhood uh, you know when komal is harassed by all those people and you know they're like calling her filthy names and just because she's going out with this boy, that sort of thing, and still she persists, and you know her, her father disappearing, all those things. Despite all that, you know. So, and I wonder what what is it with the father? He just left, or what? Yeah, Was he it?
0: just left. Um. So Komal says that he left because he has another life in Bombay. So, um, but he's not in touch then, with them at all. Not in touch with them at all. And uh, Komal's brother says that their father was not mentally sound, so yes. something happened. Um, and then, of course, the community of uh, believes that I mean, there are rumors, right? So the community believes that because things were escalating, because there was so much of um, so much of backlash that the family was facing because of Komal being in this relationship with Lakshay, that the father just left. That he couldn't deal with everything. So, yeah, those are um, some of wow. the. So, he
1: could be uh, dead or alive. Nobody knows.
0: Yeah, we don't know. We don't know. Uh, he is not in touch with Komal or um, her brother or his wife in any way. There's zero uh, communication.
1: God, that's like yeah. quite scary. So, we don't know what happened. Yeah. So, this man could very well have just vanished. I mean, anything could have happened to him. It's like some mystery, basically, since he's never gotten in touch. Though he's had these episodes of disappearing before, right?
0: Yes, yes. He he has uh, had these episodes of disappearing, like you mentioned. But, uh, yes, we don't know what has happened to him. Um, Hopefully, he's safe. Uh, But, yes, the father is not in touch with Komal and a family at all.
1: Okay, so you know, while I was reading this book, I was also curious. You know, you uh, as you know, as an Ayangar. Okay, did that have you know? Did, ha- did did that affect their interaction with you in any way? You know, your own caste status.
0: Yes, it did, um, and only in the initial stage. Because mm-hmm. when I went there, they when I went there, obviously I was very visibly someone from. A dominant caste and class, and uh, I remember when I went to Chandigarh for the first time, and I met this elderly couple, and um, their first response to me was that they joined their palms together and they bowed and they pulled their shoulders inwards, um, trying to take less space, lesser space in my presence, and I was I was quite taken aback. I didn't know how to respond to that because I was very surprised. Um. And um, I felt like you know this this is how, and I felt like I needed to mention this in the book because it really conveys how deeply ingrained caste is in their psyche, and um, and it became more relevant uh, now because I recently read a news report where um, an elderly Dalit gentleman was thrashed and assaulted and tied up by two dominant caste uh, men because he did not greet them with folded palms and um and it's just you know these these uh, these experiences of mine which uh which which I had when I was interacting with the community members I felt were very important for me to put down. you know, so there's the, the when you're writing in journalism school, you're always taught to remove the eye, right? Like remove the eye from the storytelling. Don't include yourself, don't include your voice in the in the narrative. But and that was something that I really struggled with initially because I thought that I'll completely remove myself and just focus entirely on their stories and their voice. But at the same time, I felt um, over a period of time when I was reporting and I was, and I was writing, I felt that if, if I don't include my own experiences, how I've interacted with the community and how they've interacted with me, um, then people will not be able to get a complete picture of how caste affects all our lives in many ways. So um, even like there was another uh, incident when I went, um, when I, I was reporting in Banaras, and I was staying at a guest house and I'd called the children from the community, a few of them, to come, you know, eat with me. And and I wanted to show them uh Masan. So it would be a nice like uh change for them, you know. They would and uh, it was about their community. So so it was a it was a great experience. But I remember like they really enjoyed the film. But I remember when uh when it came to serving the snacks and uh, the manager of the guest house, he pulled me aside and he said, uh, ma'am, inko khana cook. You know, they didn't want to use the manager, didn't want to use the crockery of the guest house uh, to serve them food. And he instead wanted to um serve it to them in uh, the leaf, the patals um plates. And and I was again very bewildered at completely like I didn't know why he was asking that. And of course, we had that whole conversation and they were served in proper uh, plates. But the manager knew who the children were because the locals over there are, you know, everyone knows everyone, almost everyone. And so the manager knew that these children had come from the Dome community, from the Dome Basti. So these were uh, incidents which I really felt needed to be told so that people really understand how deeply embedded caste is even today even in the
1: 21st century so yeah. um yeah i'm was... i'm also wondering at what point did their awareness of you as being dominant caste you know brahmin did that cease to make an make a difference to them you know
0: so uh, like i said initially they they were trying to put me up on a pedestal and i had to constantly remind them that we we can we are friends we can talk to each other there's please don't and they would look at me in in this uh in this uh way you know that uh, we should we should st- not not be standing too close to you we should not be touching you all of those uh things took place and uh, and it took me a while or it rather took them a while to come to terms with the fact that they can talk to me on an equal level and they can, you know, speak to me. And like, uh, like I remember once when I went to, um, this was again, like the first few weeks, like the first time they got to know me, uh, the community members, and I'd gone there to one of the homes and they had got, uh, you know, they had got a plastic chair for me to sit on while the uh, members of the household were sitting on the ground. And I had to tell them that I it's completely fine for me to sit on the ground with you um and so i had to convince them and uh, so all of those all of those uh, incidents or like i really had to tell them that it's fine you know and uh, and yeah so eventually now now they they've got uh, they've got very used to me and uh, our relationship is it's it's far better then initially, I think they were trying to also assess whether how how comfortable I would be around them. So there was, of course, because caste is so intrinsic in, in our society. So, but now, now our relationship is
1: touch wood. Everything is good. Built relationships with them. You've had long conversations over years, you know, and both you and they have become like you've become parts of their lives and for them enough for them to you know for Mohan to tell you about his experience of cremating his own mother which I found was a very uh, uh strong part of the book you know that that section where he's talking about like he's a dome who cremates people for a living but when it comes to cremating his own mother even he has you know like one would think that it would be easy because you do this every day but clearly it's not. No, when it comes to somebody you love, somebody who you're close to, even if every day you're burning bodies, it is still something that uh, uh, makes you stop and ponder, right? So how did you get that yeah. out of this?
0: Um, see, the thing is that it, it, did take me a, a, it did take me quite a while to reach that level of trust, um, you know, for them to be able to trust me and reach a level of comfort and uh, security where they could Tell me things about their lives and realize that i'm not judging them or i'm not like you know they it, it did take a lot of work and a lot of time yes. um and uh and when it came to mohan mohan is you know initially he was someone who was quite reticent and around me at least and he was a man of few words and when i met him he had a very intimidating presence um and he would only talk to you if you like if you were having a conversation with, with him then he would just speak to you in um, like he would just use a few words let's just say that he would not go um on um expanding on certain things or anything so it really took me a while to have him put his guard down uh, where he felt you know i he could talk to me um in a in a in a way there where I would not um you know not judge him like you know it, it, like he had to be like he felt comfortable over a period of time with me mm-hmm. and uh, like i said he was very intimidating when i met him the first few times and uh, then slowly what happened was as uh, the years progressed he realized that i am someone who is not like i am someone who is very concerned and very committed to the process of documenting their lives i'm not someone who's just woken up one day and come to their homes for like one day two days and then disappear after that um and so he realized the sincerity behind what i was doing and uh, and then he himself started opening up to me he voluntarily started giving me information without me even asking he would say you know this is what happens and I remember when we were uh, we were in the river like he was doing uh, Dulna dhulna. Dhulna is the process of sifting through the ash and uh, uh, you know picking out remnants of gold and silver jewelry um, and I, I was sitting on a boat um, and and he was doing his work and I was just keeping quiet. I just I was just observing him do the work and then he himself you know came closer to me. And he had this Tesla, which is this wide mouthed, shallow vessel, and they work with that. And uh, he picked out this uh, bone and uh, he said, You know, uh, this is probably it belongs to the foot of someone. And then he said, Is in this ash here, but it's not a good So, And then he st- started explaining the process of how they do dhulna. And I had not even asked him the question, but he knew like he knew that this is important to be documented. This is important to like, people should know the kind of work they do, the hardships they go through, uh, what it takes to, to do Dhulna, like which where you have to be in the river, um, you know, you'll be in the river for four, five hours. And sometimes you'll barely be able to find any kind of, uh, you know, pieces of jewelry in the, in the ash. Mm-hmm. So, and then you'll not be able to earn enough money and it's it's just it's it's a very very difficult job everything everything they do <clears throat> is very very tough the living the, the circumstances they live in so he knew the importance of the work that was being done and so he himself started like i said voluntarily telling me things mm-hmm. so um yes yeah. so towards the end you know when his mother passes away he he opened up to me. He he was he was just sounding so sad. Obviously, he was he was he was grief stricken, but he was he did have that guard of you know like oh I'm a man and so I should hide my tears or I should, um, or I I I should not express how I'm feeling what I'm going through, even though uh, men like him who are corpse burners they deal with the business of death. Of course, when they are dealing with the business of death and they're, you know, on on an on everyday basis, when they see so many corpses, they're completely emotionally detached from the work that they're doing. Mm-hmm. Because they earn their livelihood through this. Mm-hmm. So, emotions are an impediment. And once you do it every day, all your life, you get used to it. Mm-hmm. Um, But when it came to his own mother, it was, I mean, how do you, you are... It's it's your mother, right? She's the one who's brought you up, who's taken care of you. You are going to be um completely grief stricken. You are going to be in a space where you you feel your world is collapsing. Mm-hmm. So so he he uh it was it was tough for him to to tell me all of this but at the same time he felt like um and Kamla devi his mother like she and i shared a a, a very strong relationship so he knew that i'm uh, anyway we're not good let's not go into that but um yes it was very it was difficult for him to cope with this so when they have their own family members who pass away they um they do go, go through this whole process of grieving and um their rituals around that and all of that. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Um. Okay. So you know um uh, you know when well, I mean I've been to Banaras and I can barely look at manikarnika and you know and ghat and see it burning and you know I I find it quite disturbing. So I I always turn my head away. But so I was quite struck by the fact that you went in there and you recorded this. So, you know, what was the initial process? Did you, I mean, was it easy to start it? You know, because often it's, um, you know, within us, you know, one has psychological hurdles to overcome, especially on, on, I don't know, tough projects like this. I think this is quite remarkable that you did it. I would never be able to do something like this. So tell me how you prepared yourself or did you have to prepare yourself? You know, the initial, when you went in there, was it, it's, I want to know, you know.
0: So, um, initially, when I went there to Manikane Ghat, so what what happens is, for those who haven't been there, Manikane Ghat is a place where there's an overwhelming presence of men. Um, if you, I mean, there are wood sellers and there are uh, chaiwalas, there are boatmen, um They're tour guides. their are shavyatris, who are these uh, men who, you know, a group of men who travel with the cops from different cities. Um, And so if you are a woman with a notebook in one hand, a dictaphone in another, and if you have a camera dangling from your neck, around your neck, you're bound to um, attract attention. And uh, wherever I went, there were eyes following me. And um, I really had to come to terms with that. But... um, when it came to even when you when you're standing so close to the burning pyres and you're trying to document what is happening, there is so much of smoke and you, you you're, it's just it's a thick layer of smoke. And there are these corpses that are um, melting in front of you and there's ash that stings your eyes. It's um, it's it's very difficult for anyone to work there. And the fact that the domes are working there every day, it's, I I honestly, I don't know how they do it. And they do it for long hours at a stretch. They do it for 16 hours, sometimes 18 hours every day. So, um, so how did I prepare myself? I think it was just, I realized that this is something which is very important. Um, You know, their experiences, their lives need to be compiled and documented and um, people should know about it. Because people don't know about it unfortunately um i i wanted to you know create this sense of urgency this atmosphere of what it is like to be working there for the readers so at least they can get a a a, a sense a, a sense of what is happening there what it's like to live that kind of life um so i just knew it was it was important for me to do this was a this was a book that needed to be written and I hope this is not the last book, though. I hope other people write about the community, and more research is done.
1: And who's the documentary filmmaker? But you didn't name him. You gave him a. <laughs> Why is that? Did he ask not to be named? Even the benefactor, the Englishman or yes. the American, American, both of them.
0: That that is just to protect their identities, um, the identities of the community, because uh, they all like if you if you. If you learn about one particular person then everyone else gets uh everyone else, I, else's identity gets revealed and uh, komal and lakshay specifically um told me that they don't want their identities to be revealed and um and it's such and the basti is so small that if if one person is identified then everyone is identified and um yes so that was the. but, but,
1: but uh, i mean he I don't know, but because it's in English, perhaps they won't be identified. But once, if if this book is translated or something, which I think it, it's a book that really needs to be translated, you know, into Hindi and into uh, the Indian languages generally, because I mean, most of us are Hindu and we don't even think about the domes, which we should be thinking about. So you know, so don't you think then they would automatically be identified?
0: Uh, so first of all, I so I've done everything in my ability to ensure that they are not identified i've changed their names and thankfully koman and lakshay are not living in the basti anymore so it would be difficult to track them down and um and bola of course is also moved away from the city so um so one hopes that that they are safe also because i i mean i didn't want to reveal their identity because even if like dolly for instance she is accusing um yeah. You know, her husband's friends uh to be uh allegedly uh, you know, alleged murderers. Birdie. And she's um so if like I wanted to protect her identity as well because I, I don't want people to find out who she is because then fingers will be pointed and she might have uh Somewhere. she might face uh very violent repercussions. So that that's I I just for the safety of everyone, um, I've I've changed their names and changed the name of the neighborhood. Um, but at the same time, I knew this was a book that needed to be there. So mm-hmm. it it so these were the conversations that uh, that I had with myself with my editor. So we, I you told them also from...
1: that we won't be using your names, no? Nah? Yes, yes, okay. we are aware of that. Yeah, okay okay great okay so you know radhika i could keep talking to you and i thought it was a great book and i mean like i'm just hats off to you for going in there and doing it because you know all of us the rest of us we might use the services of the community but uh we never look into it you know it's a failing that i guess indian society has you know one has to accept that so thank you so much for talking to me and um uh, for for the lis- for the listeners, go out and get Fire on the Ganges, Life Among the Dead in Banaras by Radhika Ayengar. It is it's a brave book. It's a very truthful and honest book, and you know you just must read it. Uh, especially if you're a Hindu. I mean, of course, if you're anybody. But if especially if you're a Hindu and like you know you haven't been thinking about these these things, you should definitely start thinking about it too and about uh, the. I mean, you know, about people that we invisibilize. So, so thanks so much for talking to me, Radhika. Thank you. Thank you, Manjula. Lovely speaking to you. Okay. Bye. See you. Bye.
0: To stay updated on this podcast, follow us at HT Smartcast on all the major social media platforms. To listen to more such podcasts, log on to www.htsmartcast.com.